Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled Orthodoxy with an Eastern Flavor. And we need to begin this episode by defining that term, orthodoxy. It comes from Greek, orthos meaning straight, and idiomatically, it means that which is right or true. Doxa is from the verb dokain, meaning to think. Doxa is one's opinion or belief. As it's most often used, orthodoxy means adherence to accepted norms. In reference to Christianity, it means conforming to the creeds of the early church. That is, those statements of faith that have been issued by the church councils that we've looked at in recent podcasts and we have an entire series on in season two. In opposition to orthodoxy is what's called heterodoxy, or other teaching. Heterodoxy deviates from the faith that's defined by the creeds. Specific instances of heterodoxy, that is, deviant doctrines, are called heresy, and those that hold them are known as heretics. When heresy causes a group of people to remove themselves from the communion of saints so that they can form their own distinct community, we call that a schism. But there's another very different way that the word orthodox is used in Christianity. It's the name of one of the four great branches of the church, Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox. The fourth is that branch of the faith that we've been looking at in the last couple of episodes, the Nestorian Church, also known as the Church of the East. In the West, we're familiar with Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. We're less aware of Eastern Orthodoxy, and most people haven't even heard of the Nestorian Church. Ignorance of Eastern Orthodoxy is tragic, considering that the Byzantine Empire, which was home to the Orthodox Church, continued to embody the values and traditions of the Roman Empire until the mid-15th century, a full millennium after the fall of Rome in AD 476. It'll be many episodes of Communio Sanctorum before we get to the year 1054, when the Great Schism took place between the Eastern and Western churches. But I think that it's helpful to understand how Eastern Orthodoxy differs from Roman Catholicism so we can stay a little closer to the narrative timeline of how the church developed in the upcoming episodes. One of the ways that we can better understand the Eastern Orthodox Church is to quickly summarize the history of Roman Catholicism in Europe during the Middle Ages as a contrast. In the West, the church, led by the Pope with cardinals and bishops, oversaw the spiritual and religious aspects of European culture. The affiliation between church and state that began with Constantine the Great and continued for the next century and a half was at best a tense arrangement. Sometimes the Pope and the Emperor were close, at other times they were at odds and competed for power. Overall, it was an uneasy marriage of the secular and the religious. During the Middle Ages, the Church exerted tremendous influence in the secular sphere, and civil rulers either sought to ally themselves with the Church or to break the Church's grip on power. Realizing how firm that grip was, some civil rulers even sought to infiltrate the ranks of the church to install their own bishops and popes. The church played the same game and kept spies in many of Europe's courts. These agents then reported to Rome and sought to influence political decisions. The situation was dramatically different in the East, where the church and the state worked in harmony. Though foreign to the Western mind, and especially the modern Western mind, which considers a great barrier between church and state, in the ancient Byzantine Empire, church and state were partners in governance. 
They weren't equivalent, but they worked together to shape policies and provide leadership that allowed the Eastern Empire to not only resist the forces that saw the West collapse, but to maintain the empire until the mid-15th century when it was finally overrun by the Ottoman Turks. In our attempt to understand Eastern Orthodoxy, we'll look at the description that Marshall Shelley provides in his excellent book, Church History in Plain Language. The prime starting point for understanding Orthodoxy isn't to examine its basic doctrines, but rather its use of holy images called icons. Icons are highly stylized portrayals of one or more saints, set against a golden background with a halo around their heads. Icons are crucial in understanding Eastern Orthodoxy. Orthodox believers enter their church and go first to a wall that's covered in icons called the iconostasis. This wall separates the sanctuary from the nave. The worshiper kisses the icons before taking his or her place in the congregation. A visitor to an Orthodox home will find an icon in the east corner of the main room. If the guest is him or herself Orthodox, they'll greet the icon by crossing themselves and bowing, and will only then greet the host of the home. To the Orthodox, icons are considered much more than man-made images. They're manifestations of a divine ideal. They're considered a kind of window into heaven. In the same way that grace is thought to be imparted through the Roman Catholic Mass, grace is thought to flow from heaven to earth through icons. Protestants can better understand the importance of icons to orthodoxy by considering how important the Bible is to them. As scripture is the written revelation of God's will and truth, so icons are considered visual representations of truth that have as much, if not more, to impart by way of revelation to believers. In fact, icons aren't painted. They are said to be written, conveying the idea that they fulfill the same role as scripture. The Bible is the scripture in words. Icons are scripture in images. As I said, an icon is a highly stylized portrayal of saints or Bible scenes on panels, usually made of wood, most often cypress, which has been prepped with cloth and gesso. The background is gold leaf, depicting the glory of the divine realm and that the image is thought to have come from, with bright tempura paint making the figures and decoration. When dry, the panel is covered in varnish. Some ancient icons are amazing pieces of art. Icon artists considered the writing of icons as a spiritual act and prepared for it by fasting and prayer after having completed a laborious technical training. Strictly speaking, Eastern Orthodox theology says that icons are not objects of devotion themselves. They're thought to be windows into the spiritual realm by which the divine is able to infiltrate and affect the physical. Though that's the official doctrinal position on icons, they are kissed and venerated at the beginning and at various points during a church service. Icons aren't worshipped, they're venerated. Meaning, while they aren't given the worship that's due to God alone, they are esteemed as a medium by which grace is bestowed on worshipers. While this is the technical explanation for the use of icons, watching how worshipers use them and listening to how highly they're regarded, I have to say I'm hard-pressed to see how, in a practical sense, there's any difference between veneration and worship. To many objective observers, the use of icons does seem a clear violation of the second commandment, prohibiting the use of images in the worship of God. Scholars debate when Christians began to use icons. Some say their use began in the late 6th or 7th century. 
Before icons became popular, relics played an important part of church life. Body parts of saints, as well as items connected to biblical stories, were thought to possess special spiritual power. Caution. I now opine. All of this was superstitious silliness, but it framed the thinking of many. Since there were only so many holy relics to go around, and each church made claim to one so it could draw in worshipers, icons began to be used as surrogates for relics. You know, if you can't have a piece of the cross, maybe a golden painting of Mary holding the baby Jesus will do the trick. If you can't have Stephen's index finger, how about his icon? Miraculous stories hovering around relics and icons were legion, each claiming some special connection to God and the saints. Relics were said to bring healing. Icons were said to weep tears or bleed. The fragrant scent of incense was said to attend many of the greatest icons. And the tales go on and on. The question in all of these claims is, where do we find the use of such things condoned in Scripture? By way of reminder, evangelical Christians determine what defines biblical as opposed to Eastern Orthodoxy by this set of questions. Number one, did Jesus teach or model it in the Gospels? Number two, did the early church practice it in the book of Acts? And number three, do the New Testament epistles comment on or regulate it as normative for faith and practice? Using this threefold filter, the use of relics and icons simply isn't orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox Church refers to itself as the Church of the Seven Councils. It claims a superior form of the Christian faith because it draws its doctrine from what it says are the main church councils that defined normal Christian belief. The last council, Nicaea II in AD 787, came about as a response to the iconoclast controversy that we'll talk about in a later episode. The point here is that Nicaea II declared the veneration of icons to be good and proper. What we're to glean from this is that claiming to be a church that adheres to the creeds of the seven councils doesn't mean much if those councils are just gatherings of fallible men. It isn't their creeds that are important and that define the faith. It's scripture alone that has that role. Creedal statements are only so good in as much as they're a proper interpretation of the word of God, but they are not themselves that word. Another important distinction between the Eastern and Western churches is how they view the object of salvation. Western Christians tend to understand the relationship between God and man in legal terms. Man is obliged to meet the demands of a just God. Sin, sacrifice, and salvation are all aspects of divine justice. Salvation is cast primarily in terms of justification. In Roman Catholicism, when a believer sins, a priest determines what payment or penance he owes to God. If he's unable to provide enough penance for some especially heinous sin, then purgatory in the afterlife provides a place where his soul can be expiated. In Protestantism, penance and purgatory are set aside for the biblical doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, whose work at the cross atones for all sin for all time. Justification by grace through faith is a keystone of evangelical theology. But here still, the issue is legal and forensic. This legal emphasis is continued in Roman Catholicism's view of the papacy. According to Rome, Christ commissioned and authorized Peter and his successors, the popes. That legal authority is seen in the symbols of the papacy, a set of keys. Eastern Orthodoxy presents a contrast to this legal emphasis in Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. 
The core of Orthodox theology is the incarnation of God and how it affects the restoration and recreation of fallen man. In Orthodoxy, sin isn't so much a violation of God's law as it is a denigration of God's image. Salvation is less an issue of making sinners just before a holy God as it is an, a restoration of God's image in them. In Western Christianity, Jesus is seen primarily as the substitutionary sacrifice who atones for sin and reconciles sinners to God. There's a great burden of guilt due to the penalty of sin that God's righteous justice must be paid for. His law has been broken. It must be set right. Jesus sets it right through the cross. His resurrection vindicating and validating a sacrifice as sufficient. This is why the crucifix is such a prominent feature in Roman Catholicism and the cross is central to classic Protestant preaching. In Eastern Christianity, Christ is God incarnate and on mission to restore the image of God in man. And when I say image, think icon. This is not to say that in Orthodoxy there is no mention of justification or that in Romanism there is no suggestion of restoration. There is. It's more about where the emphasis lies. In Orthodoxy, the Church is far less the formal institution that developed in the West. It's conceived more as the mystical body of Christ, continually renewed by the Holy Spirit. This seems a rather odd claim to Protestants who visited an Eastern Orthodox Church, which is filled with images and a liturgy that's, well, quite formal. Compared to the spare architecture and decoration of Protestant churches, Orthodoxy does appear formal, but that formalism doesn't extend to the hierarchy of the church. There's no pope in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Each of the major branches of Orthodoxy has its own patriarch, but there's no one overarching head bishop who oversees the entire Orthodox Church, as the pope does in Rome. The Eastern Church sees itself as a community where men and women are restored to the likeness of God. So we might ask, when did this fundamental difference between doctrinal emphases begin? It's difficult to say for certain because the theology grew through a slow, steady progression. But we could say that the difference emerged when the gospel arrived in Corinth, then Rome in the first century. Corinth was Greek, Rome was Latin. The Greeks were more philosophical by nature, and the Gospels appealed to their ancient quest to perfect man. The Latin Romans were fascinated by all things legal. They were a race of lawyers. A brief look at the history of Rome's rulers reveals the importance that the law played. Whoever could manipulate the courts and the Senate ruled. A good way for us to get a handle on the difference between Eastern and Western Christianity as it exists today is this. Many Western Christians look back at Constantine's uniting of church and state as a, well, a negative development in church history. At the time, it seemed a blessed relief to a church that had been hammered by two centuries of persecution. But looking forward from that ancient place and knowing what's coming, we lament the corruption that's in store for the church. So, historians of Western Christianity speak of the enslavement of the church by the state. For Eastern Christians, Constantine is regarded as a hero and a saint. Orthodoxy considers his reign as the climax of the Roman Empire. According to this view, Rome evolved into a religious monarchy with the emperor as the connecting link between God and the world. The civil authority of the state was the earthly reflection of divine law, while the church was the religious reflection of heaven on earth. 
In orthodoxy, the emperor was the place where the civil and religious authorities fused. While the church and state were different entities, they weren't seen as separate spheres. They worked together to govern all of human society. Constantine's imprint on Eastern Orthodoxy is simply undeniable. He considered the empire the bearer or the litter that carried the church. As emperor, his role was to lead both church and state. Recognizing the need to mark this new moment in history, Constantine moved his capital to what was called New Rome, or what the people called Constantine's city, Constantinople. He built the splendid Church of the Holy Apostles to shift the center of church life to the east. To indicate the importance of the emperor as God's agent, in the midst of the twelve symbolic tombs of the apostles in the Church of the Holy Apostles, Constantine built a thirteenth tomb for himself, making it clear that he considered himself foundational to the faith and an equal to the apostles. This helps us understand why Constantine was so zealous to find a solution to the trouble of the heresy that Arianism caused. As Shelley says, Constantine was superstitiously anxious that God would hold him personally responsible for the divisions and quarrels among Christians. If Christianity lacked cohesion and unity, well, how could it be a proper religion for an empire? And so Constantine and the emperors who followed him made every effort to secure agreement about the Christian faith. Constantine thus adopted the practice already in use by Christians to settle differences on a local basis. This time he called all the leaders of the church to meet and agree upon the proper belief and practice. This policy became an integral part of the Eastern Church tradition. From the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in 325 to the seventh in 787, also held in Nicaea, Emperors called the councils and imperial power presided over them. That's why to this day, the Eastern Orthodox Church refers to itself as the Church of the Seven Councils. These councils produced the creeds which embodied orthodoxy. That orthodoxy was then enforced in society by civil authorities. Faith ceased to be a purely spiritual or church matter. It took on a political dimension. While the Byzantine Empire had several notable rulers, the most significant after Constantine was probably Justinian the Great, who ruled from 527 to 565. Constantine maintained a distinction between being a Christian and the emperor, but Justinian merged the two to become a Christian emperor. And this reveals one of the fundamental differences between East and West. In the East, the head of the state and the head of the church were fused into one office. In the West, while there were times when a pope wielded tremendous political power, it was in a rather covert manner. Civil rulers were also at times given great influence in church affairs, but typically sought to use that influence behind the scenes. Church and state were kept in separate spheres in the West. In the East, they merged. Justinian thought of himself as God's agent and the executor of his will. The empire was God's instrument in the world. It bent its knees to Jesus, but then rose to enforce its vision and version of Jesus' will on earth. This union of church and state continued on in the years that followed. Even under communism, the Russian Orthodox Church, which is a branch of Eastern Orthodoxy, continued to operate through state license. It was under Justinian that the unique Byzantine merger of Roman law with Christian faith and Greek philosophy took place. All of it flavored by a dash of Orientalism. This is seen most clearly in Byzantine art. 
Whereas the West had gone in for the realism of the Greek classical age, the Byzantines submerged the physical world of human experience under the supernal and transcendent realm of the spiritual. Nothing revealed that more than the Church of the Holy Wisdom, known today as the Hagia Sophia. Justinian's church was a remodel of an earlier church constructed by Constantine. Justinian gave the order that it was to be the grandest building on the face of the earth. Constructed in record time, it was an indeed an amazing feat. When it was consecrated in 538, Justinian exclaimed that he'd outdone Solomon. The dome, largest to date, was thought to hang by a golden chain from heaven. It was so immense and so high above the ground that some thought that it was a piece of the sky. The mosaics that made up the floor of the church dazzled the eye. Years later, when emissaries from the king of Ukraine visited Constantinople on a quest to find a suitable new religion for the Ukrainians, they were overwhelmed by the Hagia Sophia. It may well have been their report back to their monarch that moved him to choose Christianity as the new state religion. The emissaries said that when they stood in the Hagia Sophia, they didn't know if they were standing in heaven or on earth. It's important to mention here that the Byzantines rarely, if ever, identified themselves as such. They were Romans. Constantinople was New Rome, but they were not part of a new empire called Byzantine. That's a label that was applied by much later historians. They were Romans and part of the Roman Empire. The western half of the empire may have fallen to barbarian invaders, but the empire lived on in the east and would do so for another thousand years. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.